the uh, spring of 1998, Sherry and I are engaged at the time. We're getting married that summer. We were seniors in college and uh, finishing up at Moody. And so because we were trying to save for a down payment for our first apartment, had some things coming up, I decided that spring break that instead of going home to Ohio and spending with my family, I would stay there in Chicago and work uh, at the coffee shop that I had a job at in downtown Chicago. And so Sherry's family lived out in Bartlett. And so we stayed there for the week and I would drive back and forth uh, throughout the week and, and work during the day, could put in extra hours and was trying to save some money. And I had made the drive from downtown Chicago to Bartlett any number of times, um, but Sherry was always with me when I did it. And so that first day of work, I obviously make it down to Chicago fine. I put in a long day's work and then I start the, the trip home. And something somewhere along the way went wrong. And just for those of you, I don't know where the line of demarcation is, probably like right around 40 or 35. But like when, when I grew up driving, like we didn't have cell phones and GPS. And so when you got lost, uh, you were just kind of lost. We had a, literally like a, an atlas that I carried in my car with me all the time to try to like map stuff out. And for whatever reason, I got hopelessly lost somewhere in the greater Chicagoland area and drove around for hours. The other, the other thing that was a problem is, this is another pre-cell phone thing, is I obviously knew Sherry's phone number to her dorm room really well. I did not know their home phone number. So I had no ability to like call and say like, I'm alive and I'm lost or anything. I'm just wondering. And I would stop from gas station to gas station just in like a general effort to try to get closer to Bartlett because I knew if I got myself close enough, I'd be able to, to find my way. And I am not like direction, I'm directionally challenged to begin with. Like literally in high school, I would, when I was gonna go hang out with my friends, I would take my younger brother because he's like a human GPS. And so I'd be like, I don't, you know, he got to hang out with upperclassmen all the time just because I couldn't get there without him. <laughs> and you, you know, like if you've had some experience like that, like I remember arriving at the house eventually and Sherry comes running out of the house crying to hug me because she's sure I was dead on the side of the road somewhere. Like, I mean, it was hours. You know that, that feeling. I, I want you to kind of like go back there for a second if you can. The emotions that, that those moments evoke in you, that sense of anxiety and fear, uncertainty, and, and at times, right, a sense of like hopelessness. Because I... I, I I want you to feel that. I want you to think about that because I think that these are some of the same emotions that accompany our human experience. Not only when we can't find Bartlett, which is stressful enough, but when we can't find meaning or we struggle to understand purpose. When our destination, where we hope to land is salvation and we feel lost, we, we live in this kind of uh, perpetual sense of anxiety and fear and uncertainty. I think much of our brothers and sisters and our own experience can, can relate to this at one level or another. Today we're beginning a new series that Daniel wrote a song for. Isn't that incredible, by the way? Like, that's one of those things where I just can't, like, it's because I can't do that at all. Like, it's when I see it happen, I'm like, how does his brain work that way? But um, 
I'm so grateful for all the work that Eric and Allie and Daniel do for us. We're in a new series entitled The Way, where we're beginning to explore what it looks like for us to live according to the, the design and the teachings of Jesus. This title, The Way, was a title that was used, it was used to describe the early church in, at its infancy, and in its very outset. Right at its beginnings. In fact, uh, just some examples of this. In Acts chapter 9, Paul, as you know, at the time, he's called Saul. And he is not a fan of this, the way, of the way of Jesus. In fact, he's actively trying to eliminate it and to stamp it out. Look at how he describes this. This is in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. It says, now Saul was still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So the, the name, the label that they gave for these early Christians, as Paul understood it, was those who lived according to the way, people of the way. What's interesting is if you fast forward in Paul's life to Acts chapter 24, uh, he is, as many of you know, he becomes kind of this voice piece, an apostle for taking the gospel to the Gentile world. So he goes on all of these various uh, trips where he's planting churches in Ephesus and Corinth and all these different places and eventually gets arrested as a result of, of his proclamation of the faith. And so He's standing trial before Felix. This is in Acts chapter 24, verse 14. And look at his testimony here. He says, But I admit this to you. I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way which they call a sect, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. So now Paul, one point in time, is trying to stamp out the people of the way, now identifies himself as as living according to the way, being a part of this community. The way became this title and this description of the early Christians, the early disciples of Jesus. It was a reflection that their belief in and and their adherence to the proclamation of the kingdom of God that Jesus taught and his teachings regarding life in the kingdom. These early disciples then were men and women who had dedicated themselves to living in the way of Jesus. So in many ways, I think you will experience this series this fall to be a series on discipleship, to be a series that helps us grow in and apply the teachings of Jesus in our lives. We're talking about, oftentimes we'll use the phrase, followers of Jesus. I prefer that that sort of uh, phrasing as opposed to just kind of identifying as a Christian because that, that can mean so many different things to so many different people. Sometimes when we're talking about what does it look like to live as a follower of Jesus, one of the best expressions of this that, that I've seen or heard or read about is the idea of apprenticeship, to live as an apprentice of Jesus. In fact, that, that idea of discipleship resonates with me. And if you've, ever, like, if you've ever worked in the trades or something like that, you understand that apprenticeship is is learning by following someone else's life closely you're trying to learn to do what they do 
to be taught those things by, by walking alongside them, seeing them do it firsthand, doing it with them, being corrected by them, and then, and then going and living it out, building your own career from that. Those are the, the ways that I learned about woodworking, although not in a formal apprenticeship, was by people who were far, far further down the road in their ability, walking alongside me, teaching me how to do it. So the idea of people of the way means that, that we want to live as apprentices of Jesus. We want to live according to this inverted kingdom that he taught where, you know, sometimes referred to this upside down kingdom where the values of this world and the values that he teaches us seem to be flipped on top of each other. I was first introduced to um, this idea of apprenticeship as a, as a way of thinking about discipleship from Dallas Willard's book, um, The Divine Conspiracy. When Willard was one time asked by um, somebody that was interviewing him to kind of where he, what camp he sort of identified with within Christianity, kind of his theological tribe, if you will, this was, this was Willard's answer. He said, I try to represent Christ and his teaching and his presence in the contemporary world. I try to represent Christ and his teaching and his presence in the contemporary world. This is, this is kind of a concise definition of apprenticeship. This is, this is a goal, if you will, to, to be apprenticed by Jesus that we might represent him in our contemporary world. So before we get, begin to really dive in and explore what it means to live according to the way of Jesus, we, we have to begin at what is foundational and the starting point of understanding that Jesus is the way. Before we live according to the way of Jesus, we first have to understand that Jesus is the way. Before we talk about life in the kingdom, we have to understand Jesus' invitation into the kingdom. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to John chapter 14. We're going to be looking at a lot of, of the Apostle John's writings uh, this morning, some of what he said. And, and just for some context here, this is a part of, of Jesus' farewell speech. So he is, this is post the Last Supper, post that Passover meal, the washing of the disciples' feet. Um, in fact, just prior to this, Jesus has said two really difficult things. He's said to his disciples, one among you is going to betray me. And then he told Peter, you are going to deny me. So the disciples are hearing really difficult things to hear, which makes the first words that we're going to read kind of um, almost hard to wrap our heads around. Jesus responds to the disciples. He says, don't let your heart be troubled, right? Somebody here is going to betray me. Peter's going to deny me. They're all in turmoil. And Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would, have, uh, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I may, so that where I am, excuse me, so that where I am, you may be also. That was a tongue twister. You know the way to where I'm going. Now look at what Thomas says. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? 
Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When we're working through this passage as a preaching team together, Pastor Brian commented and he said, you know, when, when the disciples, when John is hearing Jesus say this, when he's in the room with him, there's no way that he could have grasped what Jesus is saying. And yet on the other side of the cross, when he's writing this down, when he's putting it, recording these events for, for their benefit, for our benefit, he, he's able with that perspective to look and see the significance, the meaning they understood. Right? As you read through it, if you imagine yourself in the room, you can almost hear the confusion. Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. Like Jesus has the perspective. He has the ability to understand what is in front of him. His arrest and his trial and his crucifixion and ultimately his resurrection. But the disciples are disoriented and turned around by all of it. Likely at this point in time, they still have some idea, some per perceived notion of this physical kingdom that Jesus is going to inaugurate. And, and so when they say things, when he says things like, I'm going to go prepare a place for you, you know, maybe they're imagining some kind of palatial estate, but they're also like struggling with everything that he's been telling them. And how do you reconcile these, these two ideas together? And they're turned around and they're confused. And the confusion culminates there in verse 4 and 5. Jesus says to his disciples, you know the way to where I'm going. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? All right, you, you just got to take a moment to appreciate Thomas. Like he, he asked the question that they were all thinking, that we would have been thinking in that moment. Like Jesus, you have... You've, ever, you've overestimated us, right? Like, we don't know where you're going. Again, if you can just sort of like evoke those emotions that you have felt in a time when you are desperately lost, like the, the fear and the anxiety and the confusion and the uncertainty and even the hopelessness. And so Thomas asked the essential question, how, how can we know the way? How can we know the way? This is, by the way, one of the questions, the, the questions that every world religion, as we just talked about, every world religion and, and spiritual philosophy attempts to answer this in one way or another, including agnosticism and, and atheism. How, how can we know the way? And, and Jesus poignantly and profoundly answers, because you know me. Because you know me. He says, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so let's take just a few moments this morning to just unpack these descriptions that Jesus uses of himself here. Beginning by looking at, at Jesus' claim that he is the way. Jesus is the way. Life in the way of Jesus, as we're going to be talking about this fall, it begins with the confession Notice that the, the call, the action that Jesus gives to his disciples in these verses is to believe, right? Believe in me. Believe in the Father. Believe also in me. The, the call to live according to the way begins with the belief, the confession that Jesus is the way. That he is the way. 
I mentioned this summer that my family and I were in Moab, Utah, and just did some amazing hikes. And when we were whitewater rafting, one of the guys on the trip said, hey, there's this really cool hike, ironically, called Mill Creek. It's the Mill Creek is runs through Moab. And, and he said, you got to do this hike. You go back, there's this little hidden waterfall and you can swim there. And it was like a million degrees out there. So the idea of swimming was, was very enticing. So like, let's, let's do this hike. And so it's my brother and his family and my family and my mom and kind of we're hiking at different paces. Some of my nieces and nephews and my kids get, they just want to get there as quickly as possible. And then there's a middle group of us, and, and then there's the group I'm in, which is kind of trailing behind. We're just taking it all in and enjoying the hike. And I arrive at the destination at the waterfall, and I see my daughter and the nieces and nephews who went on ahead, and I'm there, but I do not see the middle group. They're not there. And so somewhere between the start of the trail and the destination, they got lost. And there's no cell phone signal. That seems to be a theme for the day. And, and so I just start backtracking and yelling as loud as I can, like yelling out my kids' names. And eventually, like, they heard me and we heard them. And we kind of met up at this, this bend in the creek, this part where the trail uh, pulls off to the right, or at least there is a trail, but not the right one, right? The, the destination that they landed at was a completely different place. See, here's what, here's the power of Jesus's words here. It's that it's, it's not Jesus is showing us the path or he is a sign on the path. Jesus is the path that leads to the father. This is his claim here. Flip over to, to Hebrews. Um, There's the same word that's translated as, as the way here is used here again. And the author elaborates this on a a bit. This is Hebrews 9, verse 8. He says, The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way, the same word, into the most holy place had yet not been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. So that path led to a different destination or had not been revealed. Verse 9, This is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot uh, perfect the worshiper's conscience. They are physical regulations and only deal with food and drink and various washings imposed until the time of the new order. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is, not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption and he goes on to elaborate on the distinction and ultimately the conclusion of what Jesus has done in his commentary on the gospel of Mark Gary Burge in these words says Jesus's answer in in John 14 6 is the premier expression of the theology of the entire gospel it's it's the goodness the good news of the gospel in a single sentence The story of the Bible from Genesis chapter 3. When sin enters the picture and access to the presence, relational access to the presence of God is is lost. All the way to the restoration of 
of all things in Revelation chapter 21 when he reestablishes a new heaven and a new earth. All of it is, is the story of, of lost people seeking to find their way back home and asking the question, how do we get there? And Jesus' answer is simple. He says, it's me. I am the way. Access to the Father's presence is found in Jesus. It's access, it's, a, it's acquired by, by belief. This is the beauty and the power of his answer. It's not dependent on you. It's not based on, on your ability. It's not uh, some achievement that you accomplish or something that you earn. It's just him. He's the way. Right? He didn't show us a way. He didn't teach us a way. He didn't even model for us a way. It's just him. Only him. I believe it was Timothy Keller who said Jesus' invitation here is as wide as the world and as narrow as the cross. In fact, sometimes we, we hear the words of Jesus in, in John 14, 6, and, and people can get offended by it because of it, the exclusivity of it. Right? But... I, I think we're missing the point when, when that's our reaction. Because this is not about being exclusive. It's about being effective. It's about effectiveness. He is the only one who leads us effectively back to the very thing that we were created for, relational presence with our Father. Which leads us then to this understanding that Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the truth. When I was uh, a teenager... One of the things that my brothers and I love to do with my dad is go to vintage car races at Mid-Ohio Racetrack in Central Ohio. This is actually how my parents met because my mom grew up about two miles from this racetrack. And my dad saw where she was from on her name tag when they went to college. And he's like, oh, Lexington, Ohio. You're right by Mid-Ohio Racetrack. And she's like, yeah, I've never been there. And he's like, what? Like he just couldn't wrap his head around different interests. Um, and so we used to go there and, and, and they would do these vintage car races, which would have like uh, a featured car. And my dad's favorite car of them all was the Shelby Cobra. And a Shelby Cobra, an original Shelby Cobra, like the one, the white one in the background, that would retail now for about like, um, you could buy one for about $2 million thereabouts. Um, they're very rare. There's very few of them left and they're just highly sought after. The car in the forefront is actually a, uh, what they call a replica car. It's a superformance Shelby Cobra. These are modern cars that are built to resemble, and, and um, in some ways, they're, they're, you know, with modern technology, they've exceeded kind of the original. But it's, it's not the same thing. Right? Jesus' statement of truth is that he is the authoritative representative and revealer of God because he is, in fact, in himself, the fullness of God. He's not a replica, right? He, he is the definition of truth. I was doing some research on this, the, the Greek word here, and just trying to understand, again, kind of in our day and age, like how did they talk about, how did they think about truth? And, and, this might seem basic, but like the, the definition that sort of seems most common was that which corresponds to reality. Like Jesus is that which corresponds to reality. 
In John, in verse 7, just after he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says this. He says, if you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. He's saying, I, this is me. I am him. I am the truth of who God is. And this is a point that John emphasizes throughout, throughout his gospel. All the way back in John 1, right? When he's introducing Jesus, and he uses this idea of the logos, the word, referring to Jesus. He says, in the beginning, in verse 1, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jump down to verse 14 then. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son of the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, who is himself God, is at the Father's right side. He has revealed him. Now again, culturally for us, this, this can be a bit uh, difficult to, to swallow. One of the highest values in our culture, in our world, is the idea that truth lies within us. And that reality for each individual is experienced, it's uncovered when, when we find that truth. And when we find that truth, then the moral thing to do is to sub, uh, subsequently accept and to apply our truth. If, if um, Carl Truman's book, The Rise and uh, Triumph of the Modern Self, unpacks how this sort of ideology has has found root kind of um, through art and philosophy over the last couple hundred years. It's really not, not new. It's been building for some time. But imagine then when, when we come in with kind of a cultural lens, this has a way of seeping into everything. We come in with kind of our cultural lens and we read this and Jesus here reveals himself to be truth. So truth is a person. And this is critical for our ongoing conversations with regards to living out this way of Jesus. Because it speaks directly to, to what, or really, I guess, rather who, we view as authoritative and trustworthy. Right? In other words, if we are going to live in the way of Jesus, then we need to be convinced that Jesus is telling us the truth. Again, when with his disciples, Jesus says, John recorded this in John chapter 8. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. He, he makes this application between understanding his word, understanding him, understanding what he taught, and and the experience, the reality of spiritual freedoms. So two things going forward that I want you to hear today. One is that to live in the way of Jesus, it, it begins with this conviction that he loves you, right? That he is the way, that he has gained access for you into the presence of, of the Father through his death, burial, and resurrection. What is asked of us is to place our faith and trust in that. And that's, that's what we talk about when we talk about salvation. And secondly, that he is telling you the truth. Which leads then, according to him, to life. 
The destination of this is, is life. Jesus is the life. In fact, this is Jesus' stated purpose. He says, a thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life and, and have it in abundance. John elaborates on this in, in 1 John chapter 5. He says this in verse 11. He says, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. Notice that the promise here is twofold, right? It, it, it undoubtedly directs us forward to the eternal life that we experience on the other side of death or at the moment that Jesus returns. Throughout church history, this, this truth, this reality has given followers of Jesus endurance and hope in the face of unbelievable circumstances. But it also informs our present life. It's a promise for the present. It, it, it transforms us. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says this, he says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. Don't, don't just look to eternity and miss what, what God is giving us, what he has offered us now. That you may have life because... He is life. Like right, right now, He came that you would have life in Him, here in, in Jesus. And again, it, I want to be careful here because we have a, a cultural definition of life and we have what, what Jesus is offering. And I, a cultural definition of life often looks very comfortable, somewhat easy, and, um, and relatively like affluent, right? That's our definition. Jesus is saying, I have a kingdom vision for you. And it, it's, it's unlike anything that the world is offering you. And it's not necessarily marked by ease or comfort or even a lack of pain. But this, this is life. This is what I've came to give you. We don't want to miss out on what God is doing here. Because we're going to start talking about this, this way of Jesus, right? I don't want to try to sell you on something that is, is simple and easy and that you're going to be like, oh yes, sign me up for that. Like Jesus' way involves sacrifice. And, and his kingdom that he's bringing is, in many ways, it is counterintuitive. And in many ways, we'll discover that it's countercultural. But it's life. Right? And if we're going to live according to this way, then we are going to have to trust him with our lives in the conviction that he is life. Right? We can live in the way of Jesus when we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for, um, for being the way. Lord, that you would accomplish on our behalf for us what we could not accomplish on our own. 
And so, Jesus, we don't want to um, neglect that life in your kingdom begins with the understanding of your invitation into your kingdom. It begins with you. It's about you. You have done it. And everything that we do going forward, it emanates out of that. It emanates out of what you have done because you have made the way, because you are the truth and because you came that we may have life when we put our faith and trust in you. And so Jesus, it all starts and it all ends with you. Be our focus, set our eyes on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, that we might live according to your way. And it's in your name we pray, amen. I, th- I love the invitation of that song, and that's that we're going to be talking about this over throughout this fall as we look to be a people who are actively saying together, okay, we trust you, Jesus. Show us, show us what this looks like. Um, it's going to stretch us. It's going to grow us. It's going to challenge us. Um, but I'm convinced that in him is life, and, and that's what he's given us. Um, if we can pray with you this morning, it's a privilege and an honor to do that. Uh, myself, some of our prayer team is available. If you came prepared to give today, our, our generosity boxes by the, the side doors. We're so grateful for all the ways that you share in and participate in the work God's called us to here. And then if you're new with us, can I invite you to stop by our, our welcome desk? We would love to meet you this morning. And uh, we have a small gift to give you um, and, and just want to put a face with a name and answer any questions you may have. So uh, I invite you to stop by there and, uh, and check that out. And now receive this morning's benediction. Go now in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. May we be found in him. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.